Our scripture reading today, it comes from Matthew, or Matthew, yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself. Malachi, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. I'll read these today. Well, he says I am on the screen. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now, it's these next number of verses I'm going to cover today in the message. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's the end of Malachi. Well, today we do it come to the end of this book and we come to the end of the Old Testament. Uh, and there's something here in these closing verses that we I think we would expect. But I also think there's some stuff in the tail ends of uh, Malachi that we would not expect. See, what we would expect is that there would be kind of a bridge somehow between the Old Testament and the New Testament that we can connect. But we've got about 350 years where there's nothing going to be spoken by anybody. Um, you know, but there, we were looking for a kind of a bridge between what God has said and what God has done in the past and what he hopes to do in the future. And we have that in verse 4 again. In verse 4, let me read it one more time. It's, the, it's a command to look back and remember the law of Moses. He said, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules. And rules are these just decrees. In other words, these were things that are good stuff, I told you, that I commanded him at Horeb. And that, of course, would be Mount Sinai for all of Israel. So the backward glance, if you will, uh, is always going to be part of our biblical faith. I think for many of us, you know, we know where we are today for the most part, but it doesn't hurt every once in a while to look back and see where we came from and kind of remember what we've learned along life's journeys. Now, if you are a Christ follower of, of any time, I mean, I can look back many, many years and I can see where I was at one point. You know, if I look back and say, what was I like when I was nine years old and what was my faith like? What was it like when I was 19 and then 29 and then 39 and all the way up to uh, this next Saturday where I'll hit another nine with another number in front of that. Uh, but um, you change over the years. And, um, you know, how would we know the path to God's future blessing if we if he had not spoken to us in the past? See, God has spoken, and I think we always need to kind of look back uh, to that kind of sure, I guess what I call it, the sure, fixed, infallible, and inspired word of God for guidance. But uh, the bridge stretches not only back to the word of God uh, at Mount Horeb, it also stretches forward to that great day of the Lord that he's going to talk about here at the end of, 
uh, of this book, the day when God is going to just kind of slam the book shut and uh, is going to bring history to a climax in victory uh, over those people who have remained in rebellion against him uh, and his loyal subjects. Now, in verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In other words, as the Old Testament now closes, God makes known that he's not yet finished with his plan for the world, or we might even add, or Israel. There's a great day of victory that's coming. And by the way, it's something I pray about every day. And I always think before I write this sermon for next Sunday, Lord, it would be okay if you came back. Be okay with me and it would probably be okay with most of you. Uh, but we're going to be prepared uh, here. So here comes this bridge, if you will, between the old and the new. Look back at the faithful work of God. And I think all of us can do that. Look back at how God has been faithful in the past. And now look forward to that final day of victory when it will ever come. But here's another but what I would not expect as the final word in verse six, where Malachi chooses to tell us that we're going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That I didn't expect at the end of the book. It's kind of like a left-hand turn. So here at the end of this series, I'd like us to, uh, to let the end of the Old Testament direct our thoughts about God in three different ways. Uh, first of all, from verse four, we're going to take a backward look to God's revealed word because God has revealed his word in our life for umpteen years. Uh, secondly, we want to consider a forward look in our own life as Christ followers uh, and looking forward to God's final victory and the time when Elijah comes to prepare the way. And third, we're going to consider the effects of God's word on the relationship between fathers and children. I mean, what on earth? Does that mean? So we're going to look back to God's revealed word. So if you go back to verse four again, you take that phrase, remember the law. Remember the law. Now, what does that mean? Well, maybe the best way uh, to kind of bring out the sense of that would be kind of an interesting analogy I thought of. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus is talking to a bunch of people and he's kind of appealing to their sense of urgency in the last days. And he warns against trying to save your life by piling up worldly securities. And to drive his point home, he says something very interesting. He said, remember or call to mind Lot's wife. I think, what on earth has Lot's wife got to do with the end of Malachi? Why Lot's wife? Why did he bring her up? Well, it's because the memory can save them from a similar fate. I mean, think about it. Still today, there are a lot of people who have literally been snatched out of Sodom and Gomorrah, a sinful past, out of a city of destruction, who then occasionally turn around with a longing look and think, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah was at least a lot of fun from time to time. I missed the old days when I used to, could and shouldn't and done that. And what happens is they turn back into that hardened pillar of salt one more time. Scripture talks about don't return to your vomit like a dog. That's why Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. 
let the memory live and the power in your life. See, memory can be something that encourages you in your salvation walk. So when God says, remember the law, I think it ought to kind of ring in our ears the same way uh, that that phrase, remember the Alamo, for example, uh, rang in the ears of the Texas revolutionaries. And many times you heard that, remember the Alamo, you remember, what, 328 guys or something like that fought thousands of Santa Ana soldiers. See, it means don't forget what happened at Mount Horeb. Don't forget how I brought you out, as Scripture says, on eagles' wings out of Egypt. Don't forget how I came down with power and glory on Mount Sinai. Don't forget how I showed you my love and my kindness. Uh, Don't forget how I made a covenant with you. Uh, Don't forget that I chose you out of all the peoples. Don't forget I taught you the way of life. Don't forget the everlasting joy of the good commandments. Don't forget the wise statutes I taught you. Don't forget the ordinances. All of that stuff I gave you for the good reason. Now, it just reminds me when I, when I hear those words and when I wrote those words, we're in a war. I don't know if you ever figured that out. If you figured that out today, we're in a war as Christ followers. As, as churches uh, that believe in the inspired word of God, who truly believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we are under attack. I can't believe the stuff I'm supposed to believe today as opposed to what God's word clearly says. And it just drives me absolutely crazy when I see some Facebook pages, some posts by Christians, and what's happening in our Christian schools and our Christian universities that is so far afield from what God's word says. You know, I just I just want to cry. And uh, we're in a war. And the only way we can win the war is to remember the law, to remember God's word, his grace, his love, his mercy. And I'm sure that's what God is saying is is going to say someday to what I would call professing Christians. uh, For whom the death of Jesus made little difference or maybe no difference at all. But the interesting thing is before God lays down the law, scripture says he's going to show them mercy. That's the good news. That's exactly what God is saying concerning the law in Deuteronomy. Uh, So here at the end of Malachi, I urge all of us just to take some time uh, to think about how we're going to keep the word of God in remembrance and how the word of God is going to go with us as we walk forward. Here's the second part of this message, and it's that looking forward to God's final victory. In verse 5, it kind of shifts the focus from the past to the future and then from having a memory to hope. He says, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, I really believe that God continues to send prophets out in front of us. Maybe not in the biblical sense of the word, but people who are foretellers. And um, there are two things about the future that these people need to bring. I think we need to see from this verse. One is that God is going to be victorious. Now, we might think we're in a losing war sometimes, but guess what? God wins. He wins. in the, My Bible says he wins at the end of the book. And we see this prophecy of victory in that phrase, the awesome day of the Lord. 
Now, what does day of the Lord mean? Well, if you jump to um, Luke chapter 22 and verse 53, let me give you an example. In Luke Luke 22, 53, you've got the night when Jesus is betrayed talked about. And this is where all of the chief priests and the Pharisees and the captains and the soldiers and the guards all come to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. Now, Jesus kind of pricks their conscience in a kind of an interesting way by saying this. Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs when I was with you day after day in the temple? You did not lay hands on me. And then he goes on and says something that I would call sovereign sovereignty. His submission to God. He says, but this is your hour. Isn't that interesting? To these people out there, this is your hour. And this is your power in the darkness. But what does he mean by telling these guys, this is your hour? Well, it would be like what I'd like to say to a lot of people today who want to tell me all kinds of stuff that doesn't match up with the Bible. Your time will come. Your time will come. In the interim, I'd like to help you straighten it out so that when the time does come, you'll be going in the right direction. He just means right now, these people have the upper hand. It's as if uh, Jesus kind of puts his boxing gloves down to his side and they just beat him senseless. And the whole world thinks Jesus, the whole problem with Jesus is all over. But again, if you go back to your Bible, Amos, Joel, Isaiah, Zephaniah, Malachi, Paul and John in the New Testament tell us that God will have his day. His time will come. The power of darkness has his hour, but God will have his day. Big difference. And it will be the last day, by the way, uh, and his cause will be totally victorious. That's, that's the cool thing. We're, we're, on the, we're on the winning side. And not only did he get up off the mat, but, you know, you can almost picture that at the cross when Jesus says, you know, he shouts out the, 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 those words to telestai, it is finished. He was surrounded by millions of angels. After all, who was he? The Lord of hosts. He's the guy who has all of these angels. He's going to settle accounts. So the day of the Lord is really a prophecy of God's victory. It's a victory for his cause, but it's also a victory for his people. And, and I'd suggest to you that it's... Uh, it's pretty foolish to stay on the other side. I don't want to be on the other side. I want to be on the winning side. I always like that as a coach. I always like winning. I like winning more than losing. That's a whole lot more fun. Especially in view of all these other things in, in the verse, namely that God is merciful and gives warnings. He's constantly preaching warnings to us. And he's also at the same time preaching invitations. Folks, this is bad, but come here. Folks, this is bad. But I have mercy. This stuff is bad for you, but I want to, I want to show you love. This is hate. I, I, I'm the greatest lover in the world. That's what he's saying to all of us. In verse 5, he says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, um, if we had a whole lot more time today, I'd love to go into kind of a detailed study with you about the expect, expectation of Elijah. Maybe we can touch on that in some talk back time this morning, but... All I can say for now is this. The expectation of the Messiah's coming 
will be fulfilled in two stages. The first and the second coming of the Lord. And so also the expectation of Elijah is going to be covered in two different stages. In Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 to 12, it pictures two witnesses at the end of the age. Making one last extraordinary call out to Israel to repent, to prepare for this impending judgment. And one of these is almost certainly the final Elijah. Final Elijah, because he says this final Elijah has the power to shut up the sky that no rain may fall. Do you remember somebody else who said there's no going to be no more rain? It was that first Elijah back in the Old Testament. Kind of interesting how that all fits together. Now, apart from the details, what's the main point of this prophecy? Well, it's that God precedes the wrath of judgment, always with his call of mercy. He sends messengers to Sodom and Gomorrah. He sends messengers to Nineveh. He sent messengers to Jerusalem. He sends messengers to Kansas City. He sends messengers to Lincoln, Nebraska. He sends messengers to Hollister. He sends messengers to Branson. And he does this before he pours down judgment. And he doesn't send just one messenger. It's a whole line of messengers he sends out to warn us about the last days. Now, as I was writing this message, I thought to myself, you know, it's, it's really no accident that you guys, I didn't know who was going to be here today, but I'll, I'll put it this way. It's no accident that you and I are here to, this morning and that I am actually sharing this teaching. Now, understand, I am not the biblical Elijah. I want you to know that. And you're all going, well, we knew that. <laughs> but <laughs> I am a kind of Elijah. A voice crying out in the 21st century wilderness. Now, if I were right here and if I dressed in camel skin and something and was eating bugs and honey like John the Baptist or some other prophet, I wrote down, this is what I'd be telling you this way, prepare for the day of the Lord. Your presence here in my message from this text is God's invitation of mercy to you today. You are God's creation. You belong on his side. The bridge is built that crosses the great divide. It's called the cross. Amnesty is signed with the blood of his son. So come back home before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Well, I guess I did just say that, didn't I? So speaking prophetically and as an apostle. So in verse four, we look back and we remember the law of God. God's law, which is perfect and pure. In verse five, we look forward and see the victory in the mercy of God. But here's our third point here. We're in verse six, we're going to consider the effects of God's merciful word. And here we see one of the unexpected effects of this. When Elijah preaches and cries out for people to get ready to meet on the great and terrible the day of the Lord, what happens? The answer is verse six. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, what on earth is he talking about there? Well, in other words, his aim is to spare people from being cursed. God does not desire that people be cursed at the end. Now, that's the mercy that he's talking about in verse 5. 
But to save people from being cursed, he says that people, and here he uses this, this term, fathers and children, need to be changed. If we're going to be saved, we need to be changed. And even though God threatened utter destruction, his ultimate hope is that people will respond in repentance and faith to the message of prophets like Malachi and John and every other prophet or whatever that God has sent down through the ages to tell them that judgment day is coming. And see, even though he threatens destruction, his ultimate hope is that people always, always turn back in repentance, always turn back to him. And specifically, it says their hearts will be changed. And Malachi's prophet prophecy here includes an explanation of what the people could expect next in the prophetic calendar, and that's the announcement that, guess what, friends? Judgment Day is coming. No big news. To, shouldn't be any news to any of you. I prayed this morning that it would happen before I had to preach. If, Lord, if Judgment Day is coming, this would be a pretty good time. It'd be a pretty good time. But, you know, for people who refuse to repent, and there are people like that, you know people like that, for people who refuse to believe the gospel, or for people who take the gospel and distort the gospel, it means utter destruction. But for people, and I speak to all of you, and I pray this is you, but for people who actually fear the name of God, and by fear, I'm not talking about being scared of, but having a great deal of respect and honor for. For people who fear that name, this is a day of rejoicing. See, John the Baptist called the people of his day to repentance and faith in the coming Savior. I would hope that every church in America today, somehow, someway, a pastor would find a way to say that this is as good a day as any to repent and have faith in the coming Savior. It be a little bit of law, but a whole lot of grace and mercy and love. That's a great message for us to hear. We got a way out of this world. But what do we do in the interim? Good question. Well, I'm going to show one last Bible passage. I don't think I put this on the screen. I'm pretty sure I didn't. I'll kind of tack this on at the end. One of my favorite Bible passages, uh, you find it in Acts chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. It, anytime people say, well, what should we be doing between now and Judgment Day? This is the passage that always comes to mind. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, we could, we could have a whole long sermon. What does that mean? When, when, did the, when did the Holy Spirit come upon you? Well, I can tell you that many, many years ago, it happened in something like this at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Lakewood, Colorado, when I was baptized. For me, that's when the Holy Spirit came to dwell. For some of you, it may have taken place at Trinity in Bloomington. For some of you, it happened when you were 12. For some of you, you were 28. I don't know when it, when it happened to you, where you realized this stuff is really real. So you plug it in there yourself. It says, when you will receive power, what? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Whenever that was, in whatever way that was. It says, when that happens, you will. I like that phrase. You will be my witnesses. And if you don't understand Greek, the Greek word for witness is martyrio, which is the same word for martyr. And when I first read that, I thought, 
Well, I don't know if I need to sign up for that. I'm happy, clappy just to be a pastor at some little church in, in Bloomington, Illinois, or La Fox, Illinois, or Texarkana, Texas, or in Hollister. I didn't realize I was going to be a martyr. But I also get a copy of Voice of the Martyrs pretty regularly at my house, and I realize there are a lot of people who do honestly lay their life down for the Lord. It said, you will be my witnesses, my martyrs. And it tells you where? In Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And I've had people tell me, well, I'm never going to Jerusalem then. <laughs> I'm never going to go to Judea. Well, guess what? Uh, Jerusalem could be your family. Judea could be your neighbors. Samaria could be people that you would ordinarily never want to interact with for whatever reason. And, but it says, and then to the ends of the earth. I still remember getting off a plane in Johannesburg, South Africa, a number of years ago, and the guy greeted us with, welcome to the ends of the earth. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. And then it says in Acts chapter 1, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. But guess what? He's coming back. And to that I say, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. What? Good. Anthony's great, isn't he? He's ahead of me all the way. I'm going to have him preach next Sunday. <laughs> That'd be a disaster, wouldn't it? I run this and you come up here. No, this is why God calls us to each of our own jobs at different times, different ways. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Jesus.